the vital way. With ancient wisdom meets the cutting edge to optimize your vitality and performance. There are no right ways, just better ways. Welcome, I'm Logan Christopher with the Vital Way Podcast. Uh, over the past, I don't know, what have we done now, 36 episodes or so, we, we try to cover few different topics. One of the things that's very near and dear to my heart is uh, training, strength training, getting stronger, building muscle. A lot of Superman herbs was kind of built out of this idea of athletic performance, so we have another great call lined up for you today. Uh, Nick Nilsson's with us, and I met Nick, I guess it was a couple years ago, heard about him, took a look at some of his programs, and was uh, really impressed. Um, just a little bit of his story, he's a classic hard gainer and spent years as a high-endurance or high-level endurance athlete, uh, but these days, not so much the endurance thing, much more stronger and uh, muscular as well, a pretty dramatic transformation, and uh, he's called the Mad Scientist of Muscle, which I really like that name. I'd like to start out with that, Nick. First of all, thanks for joining us, and uh, where did this name come from? Was that self-proclaimed, or did someone bestow that on you? Actually, yeah, that was uh, something that somebody basically called me at one point and like, man, you're such a mad scientist with all this crazy stuff you're doing. I'm like, you know what? I totally am. And uh, the name just stuck and I just love it because it describes what I do perfectly. Yeah, that similar thing happened to me. Someone called me the physical culture renaissance man mm -hmm. to describe the wide variety of things that I did. And I was like, that's an excellent name. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> no royalties for you, though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, do you want to share any more of your backstory that might be uh, relevant and helpful to people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you had mentioned before, when I first started in the athletics kind of field, I was a very high-level endurance athlete. Like, I could literally bust out a triathlon without even training for it. And, uh, you know, that was kind of my focus all through high school up until the point where in my last year of high school, I started getting, getting, getting bit by the iron bug. And when I went to college, um, I was 145 pounds, and when I finished my first year at college, I was 217 pounds. Wow. So yeah, it was a pretty substantial uh, gain there. Um, I basically had stopped completely doing the endurance stuff, and I discovered cafeteria food. And, uh, you know, not all that gain was muscle, I'll, I'll be straight up, but uh, I was eating like upwards of 8,500 calories a day sometimes. I figured it out, and, you know, wow. training six days a week, twice a day, and uh, literally just devoting a lot of time to it because I just loved it so much. And, um, yeah, learning as much as I could. And, yeah, I discovered what worked for me and literally transformed myself completely so people didn't even recognize me anymore. Nice. Yeah, I've, uh, my main focus has been strength and, like, movement quality a uh, bunch, but I've also done a little bit here and there of uh, putting on some muscle just because it's a interesting thing to do to be able to have that skill, especially because I would definitely say I'm I'm one of those classic hard gainers as well. So uh, I'm curious what, I, I guess we should define hard gainer for people that aren't familiar with it, but why is this something uh, most people should be interested in if they want to put on some muscle? Uh, being a hard gainer, it's, you know, it's, the funny thing is I actually don't really like that word because it's kind of mentally self-defeating. I agree. You know, it's like you're yeah. setting yourself up for failure by saying, I can't do this. Because mm -hmm. you know, whether you say you can or you can't, you're going to be right. So it's right. as soon as, for me, when I, I basically started training and I decided not to consider myself a hard gainer, and I'm just going to train and eat and see what happens, then I just took off. Because, mm -hmm. you know, then you're not shooting yourself in the foot right from the start and kind of holding yourself back. Then you're like, you're reaching for it a little bit more. 
But uh, when you, you do, obviously, people do have recovery considerations and people are different physiologically too, um, hormonally as well. So there are different things for different people that you have to do in order to gain muscle. But uh, I've never met a person that I couldn't put at least a good five solid pounds on pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Yeah, it's, I agree with that. People seem to uh, attach to that as sort of an excuse, like, oh, I can't gain muscle, so I'm not even going to try, mm-hmm. when really you're just not doing things right. Yeah, yeah, as you said, some people may have an easier time than others, but it can certainly be done yeah. no matter the case. So uh, overtraining kind of gets a dirty name, right? Everyone's like worried about overtraining, but uh, you talk a lot about, about how it can use be used effectively. Uh, so what is controlled overtraining and how is it used to get stronger and add more muscle? This is really one of the coolest things that I learned straight away when I started training my first year of training. And it's been with me ever since is basically a lot of people get stuck on kind of a linear path and they don't mm-hmm. kind of go with how the body actually functions. Like when you're, you're training in a certain level and you build up the volume, you get to a point where you're kind of building up like you're climbing a hill in a car, you know, you're hitting the gas, gas as hard as you can, and you're only going maybe like five, 10 miles an hour because this hill is so steep. That is what's called accumulation training, which is accumulation of volume, which is essentially overtraining. You're pushing to the point where your body can't really keep up. Now, the, the best part is here, you don't actually uh, accidentally just stop and quit or try and keep going and grind through it. You purposefully reduce the training volume, increase the training intensity, as a function of how much weight you're using, increase the rest period. So all of a sudden you're pulling back on the gas. I'm sorry, not pulling back on the gas, but you are pulling back on the volume and the amount of recovery that's required for your body. So it's like going over the top of that hill, coming down the other side with that gas pedal still down. So you're obviously going to be picking up speed really, really fast. And that's the best analogy for it is you're grinding and then you're coasting and really kind of flooring it. And you can see some amazing results uh, both in mass and strength with this approach. With this approach, um, for me, I found the mass to come on the front end when you're really piling on the volume, and the strength to just um, really hit you on the back end when you're backing off on the volume and focusing on the uh, the peak uh, levels of weight that you're moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, this is something that uh, I feel if people understand like the the sort of principles of progression, they can go very far in their training. Uh, at, I don't think there's a person that hasn't gotten into weightlifting or even just say push-ups and is like, oh, if I just add a push-up a day, you know, eventually I'll be doing hundreds of reps and I'll, I'll be golden and all I got to do is add one per day. But the body doesn't – sure, you can uh, progress linearly for a while, but it, it sounds like what you're talking about here is the, the body will, you know, go one direction, but then you can sort of switch gears and go in another and it needs to follow a little bit more of a cycle. Approach. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the problem is with most programs is they don't take into account your body's reaction to the training. So mm-hmm. you've got to really plan for it. And when you plan for it, really magical things happen because then you take advantage of your body's natural cycles as far as how it reacts to volume, how it reacts to intensity. And you use those cycles to push yourself forward and get a little better every time. And uh, it's really almost like a magical combination when you learn how to do this with your training. And uh, one of the programs I'm playing with right now is kind of a a double cycle of this where I'm actually doing that overtraining and then backing off in the course of a week. And then I'm also doing a larger cycle that lasts five weeks and then backing off for a week. So it's kind of like two two of those cycles wrapped up into one. And uh, I'm getting really amazing results with it. And it's, it's a very simple program. It's incredibly effective. 
Yeah. Well, so you mentioned some time periods there, and I'm sure people are curious. Like, so how long do you do? Like, let's keep it simple. Let's say like a, a simple cycle. But how long do you do more of a volume, and then how long do you switch to focusing on intensity? Typically, in a, in a normal program, I would do about three weeks on the volume. Um, I find that's a good amount of time to build up, and then three weeks or more on the back off. Um, when you're coming back down, you can actually stretch that a little bit longer. Uh, it might be three, four, even five weeks. That you, as long as you're still squeezing out strength gains, you can keep up with it. Um, the the single best program that I ever did for myself was an absolute monster. It was six days a week, twice a day. And um, I did each workout was a total body workout for the first three weeks. So I was I was hitting everything twice a day, so 12 times a week, increasing the volume, decreasing the rest periods, using like partial training, negative training, the whole deal. At the time, I wasn't working, which helps. <laughs> but uh, So I was just eating, sleeping, and training, and it was awesome. I literally gained probably about 20 pounds of reasonably lean mass during that and got ridiculously strong because when I backed off, I backed off to six days a week, still twice a day, but working half the body each time, doing more rest between sets, doing fewer sets. And um, I got to the point where um, – I was able to do 150 partial reps with 950 pounds on the bar. So just the top few inches of lockout and just cranking out the reps like that. And I actually ended up bending the bar. felt really bad for the gym. <laughs> now, was that a, a squat lockout or deadlift lockout? It was a squat lockout, yeah. Squat lockout. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's something I want to dive into. Uh, most people just think in terms of muscle when it comes to training, but there's several other important components, and I'd like to dig a little into each one of these. Uh, you talk about something, and th this exercise is a perfect example of that. While it's definitely hitting the muscles, it's also big on the connective tissues and e even the, the bones, and I'm a huge fan of this. So why, why is this so important? Why do so many people miss it, and how do you like to train it? Uh, partial training is one of the secret techniques that a lot of people, like you said, they miss out on because they're really kind of brainwashed by the range of motion police. Where it's like, like literally you see on YouTube or whatever and people are like, oh, you didn't get full range of motion, you didn't get full depth, it's not a lift, it's no good. Like, yeah. well, no, it's actually excellent because it develops connective tissue. Nothing works better at developing connective tissue than heavy partial, partial training. You need it to really maximize your range of motion, full range of motion strength as well. And uh, I think that's what a lot of people really miss is that it's not the end-all be-all, it's a training tool. And it's very effective when used properly. And uh, mm -hmm. not only for connective tissue, but like I said, bone, muscle, and the nervous system for really learning how to activate those high threshold motor units. Um, that's another thing that people really don't understand with partial training is it's not just about looking awesome that you have a thousand pounds in the bar or 500 pounds in the bar when you're benching. You know, that's not the point of it at all. And, uh, you know, when you see videos on Facebook or YouTube and these people doing idiot versions of partial training, it gives it a bad rap. And, um, you know, when you use partial training, I, I like to do it maybe uh, if I'm focusing on mass and strength, I'll do it maybe once or maybe even twice a week um, just to get that. And um, it's not just blasting the bar up and setting it right back down. You actually want to lift and hold that position so you're loading your skeleton, loading the connective tissue and really focusing a lot of tension onto that connective tissue and um, developing it helps your full range of motion by strengthening that because, one of the things I've also found, and this is what got me past a plateau in bench press, actually, is um, mm -hmm. I was stuck at 300 pounds on bench press for a long, long time. Couldn't get past it until I discovered lockout pressing. 
And uh, within literally six weeks, I was doing 350. You know, I was stuck at 300 for years, but it was my connective tissue that was holding me back. It wasn't muscle strength. My muscles were capable of moving that weight. It's just my body was inhibiting the loads because my connective tissue wasn't strong enough to bear the load. So I really had to, you know, switch up the training, focus on connective tissue training, and the weights just started going up. Nice. Yeah, and there's a lot of different ways that it can be done. Do you like to just focus on, like, the end range of motions, or are you doing sometimes half range of motions, uh, setting different partials? And do you do that to uh, focus on what may be your weak point? Uh, for instance, some people, you know, the, that last bit of lockout and things like deadlifts, that can be a problem, in which case uh, short range rack pulls can really help. But if, you know, you have a problem getting up off the floor, it's not going to help as much. So what are uh, some of the ways you approach mixing the partials in to best fit what you need with them. Yeah, and, and doing it that way is excellent. And one of the methods that I will actually use for partial training is to hit both the weakest part and the strongest part in the same workout. Mm. So you're really kind of targeting both aspects, and the middle just kind of takes care of itself. And, um, you know, when you're hitting the lockout, I'll do the lockout stuff first because it's really the heaviest and you want to be freshest for it. Um then I might, like, for example, I might do a barbell bench press where I'm doing just the top couple inches, doing a static lockout hold to finish off the set and hold it for as long as I can, then setting it down. And then I'll do rack presses, uh, pin presses, starting out of the bottom and just even coming up just a little to the lockout, to the, um, uh, what do you call it, sticking point, and then back down, a very um, explosive kind of movement off the bottom. And um this is actually extremely effective because what happens, especially with bench press, a lot of people come down into the bottom, they store up a lot of elastic energy in that position. So they're not using a lot of muscle fiber or connective tissue strength. It's a lot of rebound. And even though it mm -hmm. might not look like they're, they're not bouncing the bar off their chest, which is obviously a mistake that we never want people to do. <laughs> but uh, even if you're doing like a typical bench press where you're changing direction without a full pause at the bottom and stopping, you're still using a lot of elastic tension. If you train out of the bottom, out of a pin press, without that rebound, without that elastic tension, you're really going to develop power out of the bottom of the press. And uh, it's, it's an extremely effective way to do it. And I've also found it very effective for uh, muscle development as well, and in, in addition to connective tissue and nervous system, nervous system strength. Mm -hmm. So uh, speaking of the nervous system, uh, beyond partials, what are some of the ways you focus on building that? Because uh, the nervous system, obviously, that's kind of driving the muscles to fire. I mean, that's how you're exerting your strength. So it's a a uh, huge piece of the puzzle. Oh, absolutely. And um, the most effective way I've found for doing that, um, there's two ways, actually. Uh, one is like speed reps, where you're doing um, very explosive, very fast, but still a good form with moderate weight, a light to moderate weight. So you're really like speed deadlifts or speed squats, for example. Um, one of my favorite methods, however, is um, doing what I call single rep cluster training, which is sort of like an extended rest pause training, where you're doing a single rep uh, resting 20 seconds in between each rep, and you're doing 15 to 20 reps of that. Um, what that does is, in addition to using a very heavy weight, you can use like about 90 to 95 percent of your 1RM for this for a set of 20 reps. If, if you believe that, it's really, really effective stuff. What it does is it teaches your nervous system how to activate at near-limit loads. So you're actually practicing the movement at near-limit loads which is something you don't often get. You know, with typical, typical strength training is done with a lot of rest in between sets and very few reps. 
with this kind, you're you're getting very little rest in between sets, but you're still using a heavy weight. But 20 seconds is enough to maintain the nervous system activation in between every rep, so you're actually able to continuously function at a relatively high level and get a lot of practice with that weight. Um, for example, when I'm doing um, deadlifts, I'll do a set of 20. The first five reps are actually the hardest. The middle 10 reps are actually the, my best form reps. So it takes me about five reps, then I get in the groove, and then the next 10 reps are really good. And then maybe the next five after that, they're still good, but they're really grinding at that point. And, um, you know, just practicing and teaching the nervous system how to operate at that high level for, you know, and practicing that much, it's really effective. And it really, I've seen my weights go up tremendously when doing that kind of training. Nice. So uh, I'm, one thing I've learned, and there's definitely an application for this from like Pavel, right? The whole idea of greasing the groove as far as training the nervous system in that way is you want to be as fresh as possible. Uh, and, and there's definitely a reason for that. But here we're going kind of the opposite way. You're really keeping the nervous system activated mm -hmm. and being able to do more in that route. Yeah, is exactly. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. And um, the, the key thing is, too, is you're not... Um, pushing yourself to failure on any of these. You're still keeping shy of failure. So you're not, even though I'm saying you're grinding some of these out towards the end, you're not pushing so hard that you're bringing the nervous system down and hurting yourself. Um, you're still, you're operating at a high level, but you're giving yourself enough time in between reps to kind of reset the nervous system, to reset the ATP, to, you know, get yourself back in position for a good rep and keeping that nervous system activation. So it's similar to greasing the groove, but kind of compressed in terms of time frame. Nice. And uh, you mentioned doing this with deadlifts. Uh, are there other? Can this be done with any exercise, or do you make some recommendations for that? I would stick with the, the big exercises, uh, deadlifts, squats, yeah. presses, that kind of thing. It's not going to have the same effect on a curl. You know, it's right. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you can do it that way, but it's. I've, I've never been a big fan of very low rep curls, just because uh, you start using too much weight, and your form kind of breaks down, and you're losing the isolation on the muscles. So it's not really that good. So. Okay, very cool. So we covered the connective tissue and the nervous system. You also talk about what you call improving your plumbing. Uh, why is this important? How do you train it? That's actually a really cool concept in that um, you don't often think of the plumbing in your body, which is the, the capillaries, which are this very tiny blood vessels that feed your muscle tissue, bring in oxygen and food, and take out waste. Uh, you can actually train capillary density in your muscles by doing very high reps, by forcing a lot of blood into the muscles. Um, hundreds are a good example of this, 100 rep sets. Um, there's other variations of this that I've worked with that uh, incorporate very high reps interspersed with very low reps and then back to high reps. Um, I've actually got a, a, another book that I'm working on that focuses solely on this entire concept of rebuilding your body from the ground up by changing your plumbing uh, building your connective tissue, developing your nervous system, even some stuff on hyperplasia, which is muscle fiber splitting. And uh, it's basically three weeks of just torture. But you <laughs> you come out the other side basically ready for a whole different level of growth. Because I found, um, you know, going back to the hard gainer thing, a lot of people are, quote unquote, hard gainers because their body isn't physiologically ready or able to hold and maintain that muscle mass and build it. And part of that goes back to the plumbing that you mentioned there, and that is mm -hmm. the blood supply. If you have a muscle that's very hard to pump up, chances are it's not very well developed because of that problem. It can't get a lot of nutrition, can't get a lot of uh, oxygen, can't release the waste products very well. By training that with very targeted high rep training, you can develop that capacity. 
Um, same as you can develop connective tissue strength capacity, same as you can develop the nervous system. And by doing that, you actually, um, I've done this with shoulders and um, my shoulders are like my worst body part. I can't develop them for anything or I used to not be able to until I started doing some of this training that really develops the um, the blood supply to the muscles. And I can pump them up like crazy now. And it's a whole different ball game. It basically changes the hard gainer physiology. You know, I keep using that word because it's really it's the best way to describe it, even though I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, huh. by doing that, you change how your body responds to training and it can better support muscle growth, better support muscle tissue and basically achieve a higher level of development. That's very cool. And I think that's something not a lot of people have heard about. I, I love this because you're talking about, Oh, we're doing single reps here that now we're doing hundred rep sets. Uh, it seems a lot of people get kind of locked into, um, you know, a favorite set and rep scheme, like, oh, five by five, that's the only way to go, right? Mm -hmm. But the body is really adapting in different sort of ways to uh, different loads as well as uh, different volume parameters. So really by mixing and matching, it seems you can get the best sort of benefits of all these different methods of training. It's absolutely true, yeah. And some of my favorite people to work with are the people who have been stuck in a certain rep range for a long period of time. Because yeah. <laughs> the first thing you do is you do make them do the opposite, and they get amazing results. Right, that's like the the most common plateau. That's what I'll advise people, right? Okay, you've been doing this. Switch your rep range, and you'll bust right through that plateau. <laughs> exactly, it's like the simplest thing. It's like once you do that, then if you've been doing low reps for a long time, do some high reps. Yep. If you've been doing a lot of high reps, do some low reps. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Not rocket science here. So now you owe me a thousand dollars for you know <laughs> nice. for training, quote unquote. <laughs> All right, and uh, you also talk about training the fascia, which is uh, I'd say probably the sort of least focused <laughs> on area of the body. Uh, how how do, you, do you focus on this area? Yeah, the interesting thing is over the years, I've actually kind of changed my thoughts on fascial training. Um, you see a lot of stuff on stretching the fascia. Um, I actually did write about this previously. And just in the past few years, I've kind of been doing more research on that. And I'm, I don't think the typical fascial stretching is very effective, uh, if at all. Because fascia is so incredibly tough. It's extremely tough. And the, a simple stretch, you know, for a couple of minutes is not going to deform the fascia. Even if it's loaded, even if it's, you know, under you know, your muscles pumped full of blood, which is the typical way to do it. What I think is the mechanism here is I think the fascia still does stretch. But it's kind of um, the analogy I like to use is like a, really, a tarp stretched really tight over a few things. If you set a big rock on that tight tarp for five minutes, it's not going to deform anything. If you set a big tarp, a, a smaller rock, still heavy, on that tarp for two years, it's going to eventually create a pit and divot and deform the tarp. This is what I think happens with the fascia, is that hmm. you can use the fascial, quote-unquote, stretching to activate more muscle fibers to maybe achieve hyperplasia, to develop and build the muscle fiber from within which then pushes the fascia from within over long periods of time. So you're getting the deformation only not from external force of the stretching, but from internal force, internal pressure pushing outwards. I absolutely think fascial stretching does happen. I just think the mechanism is a little bit backwards. And um, the, the key is to you and stretching is a very, very potent hypertrophy stimulus to your body. So using it, it's not wrong, but I think the reason it works is different than I think the reason that a lot of people think it does. So I think you're activating hypertrophy and using that to 
push the fascia out from the inside for long periods of time rather than, you know, a couple of minutes stretching, which is not going to have that big of an impact on something as tough as fascia. So I think it does happen. It's just I think the mechanism is a little bit different than what I even used to think myself. Right. That's good. That that means you're constantly evolving, right? A lot of people get stuck in a position like, oh, I know everything about this, but, you know, I I just learned some new tips and tricks that I'm going to be testing out myself. Uh, I I guess the big question now is we covered all this different stuff. How do you really put it together uh, into a program that's kind of targeted in a certain direction? And the program that I like to use, and it's one I came up with a few years ago, um, it's Mad Scientist Muscle. <laughs> Ironically enough, it's a one week of doing all this uh, preparation training, basically um, the high rep stuff to develop the um, circulation, the connective tissue training, some nervous system activation. Do that for about a week and then straight into accumulation training, which is the overtraining, and then straight into the intensification with another week of that physiological training in between the structural training in between. So it's kind of taking the best of all of these worlds and mashing them up into a training system. So during these accumulation phases and intensification phases, I use different versions of that and different uh, versions of the program. I've got uh, three different ones of that in the book. And um, basically it's, it works out to an eight week training cycle where you're taking your body through the preparation. You're taking your body through the overtraining and then the ramping down and increasing strength. And some of the results I've seen people get with this kind of approach are extremely um, eye-opening. Wow, that's uh, very cool. So it, it, another question popped up. Are, it seems sometimes you're training super intensely, like, like going to failure even beyond that, but sometimes not doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a viewpoint on these things? Because, you know, there's the – uh, you always got to train to fail your camp. It's those last reps that count. Nothing else matters. And then there's people that never train to failure. Uh, what's the right approach? It's a, it's a very individual approach. But for me, I've found the I've actually not been training to failure very much at all these days. Um, mm-hmm. When I was first started training, when I was a lot younger and, and could recover better and was really just psycho with this kind of stuff i would really i was you know going nuts with the intensity techniques and i would really hammer myself into the ground and um these days i find i don't really need to do that and i get better results by not doing that where if i'm wanting to build muscle i'll focus on quality training volume and um if i'm gonna focus on strength then i back off in the volume and do focus on low reps heavy weight absolutely not going to failure still trying to push things and you know i might not make a lift sometimes here but doing my best not to get to failure. You still want to progress the weight, but you want to always lift kind of within your capabilities so that you don't get injured so that you still can progress forward. So it's, it's a very incremental approach. Whereas uh, when I first was earlier in my training career, it was a very nuts approach. And I was like, yeah. you know, let me do triple drop sets and then rebound back up to the, <laughs> the top weight again and stuff too. And I still use that kind of thing from time to time, but it's not, you know, constantly like I used to do. And I think that's kind of the evolution that I see in a lot of people too, is when they first start training, they're just gung ho and, and nuts about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, if you can recover from it, it's a blast, do it, (laughs) you know, but you may find you get better results by not doing that as much. And it's kind of like an individual thing that you need to just gauge for yourself. And Mm -hmm. if you find that kind of thing fun, you know, which I do by all means do it and just know that you might need a little bit extra recovery time to do it. Yeah, that's uh, kind of 
I guess my my thoughts on this after years of training, right? And yeah, I, I do believe everyone kind of goes through that period at least uh, one point. It, you can do that, and you can get uh, you can kind of trigger the body to um, come back from the training because it's such high intensity. You know, you can do a single set, and that that can be sufficient. Whereas if you keep things a little bit easier, you may need to do a little bit more overall volume, a little more time training, but the recovery demands aren't quite as big. Um, but your body doesn't care whether you went to failure or not, as long as uh, it's progressive in what you're doing, it's going to adapt to it. Exactly, yeah. And that's really kind of the key thing is progressing the resistance and and using good quality form. It doesn't need to be perfect every single time. And this this happens especially as you get into higher loads. You know, sometimes your form does kind of, you know, not be perfect, and there's nothing wrong with that. But mm-hmm. as long as you don't go to sloppy form that's going to injure you, you know, don't be yeah. don't be shy to not have absolutely perfect form, you know, so that the YouTube trolls are going to criticize everything you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. that's one thing that I like about the the partial training specifically is uh, a lot of times like even though you're working with heavier loads, right? If you're doing like a short range end of motion partial, like you can't really. It's hard to do those wrong. You'd have to oftentimes try to do things wrong, and it's actually really safe just because. Uh, even though it's much more of a load, it's much less of a chance of something going wrong. Exactly. You're, there's less time to make it go wrong, basically. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, obviously, you know, as a mad scientist, a muscle, you dive really deep in the science. Uh, do you feel that training is completely a science, or is there also an art to it? Yeah, it's it's really both. It's a combination of the two. And I think people who really kind of go too far in one direction can really shortchange themselves. Um, I know in a lot of cases, a lot of people get so absorbed and so focused on, oh, there's no science to back that up. There's no science. The science doesn't tell you this. I'm like, well, who cares? The science could be 10 years, 10 years behind it. You know, science is a lagging indicator. Like, yeah, yeah before there's a double blind placebo controlled study, you know, <laughs> there exactly. has to be a lot of people have experimented with it and found it works in their own uh, practice as well as with clients and stuff like that. So yeah. it's, it takes a while to find the science. Yeah. Science is in the, in the process of proving what we already know works. Right. You know, that's kind of what it is. I, I let science guide me, but I don't let it constrain me. Mm-hmm. So it's that's kind of the principle that I go by. It's like, I will use scientific principles to kind of guide my, Training, like for example, I was talking about the um, capillary density training. One of the interesting things that I found with that, and this is where I, I really did go to the science when I was designing a training protocol for it, is you need to have when you're trying to develop new blood vessels, uh, you need to have L-arginine in the body in the muscles at the time that these new blood vessels are trying to form. Otherwise, they will not form. So, in order to get enough L-arginine into your Blood, blood supply at the time, you can't actually take arginine because it's sucked up by the gut. It won't get into your bloodstream very effectively and very efficiently. So what you need, actually need to do with this specific type of training for this specific method is take L-citrulline, which converts to L-arginine in your bloodstream at a rate that's 100 times greater than by taking arginine. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so what I do before I'm trying to do this kind of training is I take a 25-gram straight-up serving of L-citrulline. And that gets into the muscles. So when I'm doing this training, it's actually right there helping the blood vessels form. And um, honestly, the pump you get from this, it's unbelievable, like literally unbelievable, because this is the kind of thing 
that actually is useful about arginine. You know, it's not just for getting a pump and, you know, it's, it's decent for that, but this is why you're taking the arginine. This is to develop the circulatory, the circulatory system on these, on this minor, minor level, which a lot of people really don't understand about why they're taking it. You know, they're like, Oh, I get a good pump from it. No, this is why you want to get a good pump from it. And this is the science that tells you why you should be using this instead of that. So in that case, not only did I let the science guide me supplement wise and nutrition wise, research on that further I dug into showed that when you're doing this style of training, the muscle fibers that are actually working at the time are the ones that are getting the increased blood supply. So if you're doing 100 rep sets, the problem with that is you're using slow twitch muscle fibers. So those are the ones that are getting the blood supply. So, you know, not a lot of bodybuilders want more slow twitch muscle fibers. So Mm -hmm. you need to actually train the fast twitch muscle fibers in addition and work that in while you're doing the slow twitch fiber training to get all the blood in there. So the, uh, right. the protocol I came up with actually, and I'll tell you about this kind of a sneak peek into the book. It's really, really cool stuff is you take a weight, for example, like, um, 20 pounds or 25 pounds on a dumbbell bench press and you do or dumbbell fly, for example, it's a better example. And you do 50 to 60 reps with that really focus on squeezing, getting a lot of blood in there getting that pump in the muscle. Now with that, set that 25 pound weight down and grab a pair of 85 pound dumbbells immediately. Do three reps of dumbbell bench press. You're hitting the fast twitch muscle fibers. That's getting blood supply to those fast twitch fibers. Set them right back down, grab those 25s and do as many more reps as you can on the flies. And this might be 20 to 25 reps at this point. Mm -hmm. Set those down, go right back to the, the 85s and do another three reps. And keep doing that until you you can actually get more reps with the 85s than you can with the 25s. Huh. And this actually works because what happens is the, the slow twitch fibers get fatigued, but the fast twitch fibers are not as fatigued. So I've I've literally gotten to the point where I can't do three reps with 25 pound dumbbells on flies, but I can do three reps with 85 pound dumbbells on the press. That's fascinating. Uh, just uh, for uh, people that might want to try this out, as far as like percentage of one rep maximum, because you, you threw out those numbers, yeah. but uh, people need to obviously go up or down in weights. Yeah. Uh, how heavy is that 85 pounds uh, for you? That would be about 80 to 85% of one RM. Okay, so it's pretty significant. It's a, it's a pretty good amount of weight, yeah. Like, for example, like right now, I can do, you know, three to four reps with 120-pound dumbbells. So this would be about, uh, yeah, about, uh, I guess it was like 75 to 80%. Okay, yeah. very nice. That's That sounds not fun. <laughs> oh, it's it's horrible. <laughs> I'll tell you. Wow. It, uh, literally, you go through, you'll go through about five rounds of this, like back and forth between these exercises. It takes about eight minutes of nonstop work. And literally your pecs will be like, I don't think my pecs have ever been that sore. And, you know, soreness is not the goal, but it creates a lot of muscle fiber damage. And uh, Mm -hmm. the pump is ridiculous, especially when you combine it with the citrulline. Um, Most uh, the effective dose of the citrulline that's been shown in research is about uh, four grams, I think, four to eight Mm -hmm. grams. And I was taking 25 grams. (laughs) So it's... uh, Wow. Yeah. It's if you get potential upset stomach, you know, start in the low end and develop that up, right. build that up a little bit. I didn't start right at twenty five. I kinda tested it to see, you know, one teaspoon, two, three, four, or five teaspoons is about the load limit that I've hit. So 
Right. So uh, you, you mentioned L-citrulline. Definitely want to talk a bit more about supplements, but let's, uh, I guess, talk a little bit bigger picture nutrition. So we, we talked about all these different ways you uh, change up your training in order to, uh, how, how do you describe it? you're working with your body's reaction to the training to kind of go to the next phase. You do the same thing with eating and nutrition, uh, doing different things at different times to trigger the body to go sort of in different directions. Uh, so can you speak to how you manipulate what you eat and the macronutrients that cause the body to go one way and then rebound in another? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the really fun things is uh, working with the body and figuring how it, how it reacts to things. And when you're trying to lose fat, um, this is basically goes straight to carb cycling, and this is the kind of approach that I've always taken with it. Is when you're trying to lose fat, you don't want to have a lot of carbs floating around. You want the insulin levels to be stable. You want your blood sugar to be stable. And for me, I found low carb diet to be perfect for that. So I will do like periods of low carb dieting, uh, three to five days, and then to in order to prevent any slowdown of metabolism, which can happen within uh, five to seven days on a low carb diet. I'll change the nutrients that I'm eating. I'll, I might go to like um, same calorie amount, but uh, low fat and high carb. So just to kind of put a refeed in there. And your body reacts hormonally very different to these kind of things. When you put the carbs in, obviously your insulin goes up quite a bit. So you use that um, those training days focused on building muscle. Whereas when you're doing low carb, you focus on losing fat. Like for example, you might during fat loss do lactic acid focused training, which helps get growth hormone, which uh, when you're not eating carbs, there's a much greater growth hormone response because it's not fighting with insulin. And insulin and growth hormone just don't get along in your body. And they're kind of, I wouldn't say mutually exclusive, but they, they don't work together very well. So when you're trying to lose fat, you want to minimize insulin levels and maximize growth hormone levels. And then this is done with low-carb eating. And then switching up, you're not worried so much about growth hormone. Then you're focusing more on insulin and testosterone, which is important on both phases. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a few minutes. So um, let's say, yeah, someone's trying to uh, lose weight. Uh, what's kind of like a basic sort of program uh, with the training and with eating, uh, sort of going between these different approaches? The uh, approach that I take is um, it's basically like a 12-day rotation where I'll do um, five days of basically strict low-carb eating. And um, the first couple of days of training might be um, just like metabolic resistance training, um, circuit training, that kind of thing. And then once you kind of get all those carbs out of your system, you get the glycogen burned off, then you're going to do a couple of days of very lactic acid-focused acid training, like generating lactic acid, higher rep stuff, very little rest in between sets. So you're generating a lot of lactic acid and keeping that there. Um, sprint training is good for this kind of thing, even though your energy levels aren't going to be great when you're doing this, just doing kind of the higher level stuff like that is really good for getting the growth hormone response. Mm -hmm. um, one of the cool things I like to do also is a couple of things that aren't necessarily proven by science, <laughs> but uh, there, there's kind of a theory uh, that I read about quite a few years ago. Um, if you've been training for a while, you might recognize this from the serious growth system from Leo Costa and the Bulgarian burst kind of thing, where it, it's like a, a day of only protein where you're cutting carbs, you're cutting fats, and you're just eliminating all that. And that kind of forces your body to dig into body fat in order to um, fuel itself. Then the next day you do no protein whatsoever. And this, this actually is the only protein is my idea, but the, the only fruit day 
is what I've read about, and that's pulling protein out of your diet for a day, which is kind of like similar to carb loading where you take the carbs out of your system and then you reload them and you store a lot more than normal. You take the protein out in theory and this sets an emergency situation in your body where it wants more protein. So when you put the protein back in, the idea goes that it's going to hold on to more protein again and the best storage of protein is muscle mass. So you're also putting the carbs back in, you're putting the protein back in, you're loading more calories. It's a very anabolic state for your body to be in. So you're using it kind of like a slingshot. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can actually stay at fairly low carb level and a low calorie level and still keep your metabolism from grinding to a halt. So you can maintain the caloric deficit without ever having problems with metabolic slowdown. Right. Um, I had a question. This is kind of my experience when the last time I did sort of a muscle gaining program. Um, I was using fasting which sounds counterintuitive, but it's just like people losing weight. You know, if you do a, a cheat day or cheat meal, right, it yeah. upregulates the hormones, so it actually aids in doing that. So I figured the inverse is true, right, with uh, gaining muscles. The body's kind of getting used to all this food, so you cut it out for a little bit, then you can kind of bounce back and uh, sort of restart the gain. So I'd, I'd, I'd kind of be uh, – and I was doing a, a very fast sort of – pack on the mass approach, so yeah. <laughs> not not slow going for as much as possible. So eating completely all the time, but every time I felt like I couldn't eat any more and the, the scales stopped moving up, I'd uh, take about like 24 hours off and then uh, train hard, restart eating after that, and it seemed to uh, really work that approach. Uh, so do you use fasting or is it just, I mean, you kind of had the protein fasting days, just a fruit uh different ideas like this, or do you do some periods of no food completely? Yeah, actually I do, and um, I think it's a, an excellent way to do it. Uh, it's especially effective for people who um, find they have a hard time eating enough to really gain mass, because mm-hmm. like you said, it does give you a hormonal reset, but at the same time, it gives your digestive system a break too, which is I think yeah. a, a very underappreciated aspect of building muscle and eating for building muscle. Is mm-hmm. you know A lot of people, when I was younger, I could eat tons all the time, these days, I eat kind of more like a crocodile, where I will go long periods. You know, I might have a few eggs for breakfast, and then for dinner, I'll eat like 4,000 calories. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can actually eat more in one sitting than I can the whole rest of the day. Yeah. And, you know, I do that at night after I train, and that's when the body's really primed to use all that. So there will be days where I literally will. I won't eat anything until, you know, like 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock even. And I'll go 24 hours, and this will be on a muscle-building program. So it's the same experience that you have there, too, is that I find I can actually get more calories in if I save them up and give my digestive system a break so that you're making room, essentially. You know, it sounds kind of crude to say it, but that's you're just making room for more. And uh, that's actually the funny thing is this goes right back to the uh, the fruit day that I mentioned as well. When you eat nothing but fruit for an entire day, it acts as a snowplow through your digestive system. It literally just all that fiber and water just pushes everything through and resets your digestive system. So you're able to start putting back a lot more food again. Nice. So you talked a little bit about growth hormone, a little bit about testosterone. Uh, Do you have like a, or could you recap uh, like the sort of quick way to focus on eating and training for growth hormone and sort of the, the quick way of eating and training for testosterone? And do you sort of cycle between these two? Yeah. If you're, say, uh, trying to put on muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, for growth hormone specifically, you want to be in a, a low-carb state, in a very stable blood sugar state. 
and focus your training on uh, lactic acid and developing a lot of lactic acid and keeping it there. Um, you also do want to train fairly heavy in this to, to keep the testosterone going. Um, when you're um, eating low carb and you're eating a lot of good saturated fats, your testosterone levels will actually go up. So this is actually a very good state for your body to be in. Um, then when you switch it up and add more carbs back in, that's when the insulin really um, peaks. Then you can really focus on heavier training, and that's what's going to stimulate the testosterone there as well. You really want to get the testosterone in both phases of this kind of thing, but you just switch out basically growth hormone for insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a theory, and the the science has not played this out because the science never looks at partial training. Mm-hmm. But with this idea of like that, the heavier loads stimulating more testosterone, uh, would it be your opinion that uh, partials may be possibly better than full range lifts just because of a higher load, or at least probably on equal terms? I think so. Yeah, especially the really heavier stuff. That kind of thing. Yeah. That kind of thing really puts a, an emergency state onto your body, and mm-hmm. that you know testosterone obviously being the most potent muscle building hormone you have, that's a key factor right there. Um, one of the other things that I've really noticed is deep squatting, mm-hmm. and that's there's something about that deep squatting that really sets off the cascade of testosterone production. So this could be like a, a very deep bottom start squat. This could be um, you know, just dumbbell squats, even just deep squatting with a good amount of weight is really going to um, help with that. And even more so than like a regular squat with partial range of motion. But just that really positioning, I think, really kind of sets things off. And I can't remember where I read that, but uh, my own experience really bears that out. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember when I was doing uh, some partial training, especially around the deadlifts, like short range, uh, rack pull, uh, you know, just the feeling you get when you lift over a thousand pounds, it's, mm-hmm. it's just awesome. And that's kind of related to the feeling of testosterone. When you have a lot of testosterone, you feel on top of the world. So, yeah. uh, I figure anything that kind of triggers that in the gym, uh, has to be increasing testosterone much the same way. I would, yeah, I would totally agree with you on that. That's, uh, yeah. Especially I like that heavier stuff. That's part of the fun of doing that heavier stuff is how it feels when you're doing it. Yeah. 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 I think that's a big component because our hormones really are kind of, they both change up how we feel, but how we feel will change our hormones. It kind of goes both ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned as far as supplements, I'm sure people are going to be curious about this, L-citrulline. What are some of your other favorite supplements and how might you pair them with these uh, different forms of training or uh, eating. The funny thing is, um, that's the citrulline is one of the very few you know, not normal supplements that I take. Um, mm-hmm. For the most part, I keep it pretty simple. I yeah. stick with uh, a really good quality protein powder. And what do you like for that? Um, I usually use the BioTrust stuff, which is BioTrust. Uh, okay. Yeah, whey protein, right? Whey protein. Yeah, it's got um, micellar micellar casein in there, which is extremely high quality, um, long duration protein. Essentially, it takes a bit longer to digest. So I've not found a higher quality protein out there. It's, you know, really, really tasty too. So it's, it's one of the best ones that I've ever found. And I've tried a lot from stuff that's total garbage to very expensive. Yeah. And, uh, yeah <laughs> right. I, I used to have the three, some of the stuff I've tried is just like, Oh my God, I can't believe I ate that. It's like, I can't even finish the bottle of like, here's somebody take this away from me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's, there's protein, there's a uh, creatine monohydrate. Um, mm-hmm. There's over the years, and I've been taking creatine for literally like 20, 
almost 25 years now, off and on. And I've not found anything better than just a good, straight-up, high-quality creatine monohydrate. If uh, you have trouble digesting it, what you want to do is get some hot tap water, mix in the creatine into that, stir it until it dissolves and you can't see it anymore, then drink it. That's going to solve probably most of your problems right there. The the problem with most people taking creatine is they just stir it into cold water, drink it down, and that's that. And it's like putting, you know, drinking sand. It's not going to get digested, which is a lot of the reason you get digestive issues from it. If you stir it up, make sure it dissolves in the hot water, then drink it, then it's going to fix a lot of your problems and you're going to get better absorption just in general. Um, there's a lot of, you know, since creatine is such a big thing that's been proven time and again, a lot of people have tried to come up with different versions of it to, and most of that stuff is just marketing. It's mm-hmm. people trying to differentiate themselves by saying, oh, we've got liquid creatine. And, oh, boy, I've tried some of that stuff. It's just horrible. I think it was like about 20 years ago that I tried that stuff. It was this nasty orange gel that uh, I just get the willies from thinking about the taste of that stuff. Like I paid 30 bucks for the tube of this garbage, and it's like I threw it away after the first. Yeah. Yeah. but uh, do, do you do uh, the loading with creatine that's commonly recommended, or how 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 do you take it? Yeah, definitely the loading. Um, what I like to do with the loading is combine it with the nutritional tricks that I had mentioned before. Uh, because creatine is such a water-loving molecule, so is sorry carbohydrates. Basically, you store a lot of water with carbs. So if you do like a week no creatine, um, you haven't been on creatine for a while. You don't take eat carbs for about a week. And then you load carbs and you load creatine at the same time. You can literally gain like 10 pounds in a day. It's going to be water weight, obviously, but that right. flood of water into your muscles carries a lot of anabolic stuff, you know, for lack of a better word, with it. And the stretch on the fibers as I let water's coming in is also a highly anabolic state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard it said that the uh, the body will store like four grams of water for every gram of carbohydrate that it stores with it. I'm not sure how much the creatine stores with it too, but I can imagine those two effects going together has to be pretty uh, pretty big. When you do the the creatine and the carbs, the first time you double up on the loading like that, the effects are just ridiculous. It's it's off the charts. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think we covered a whole lot in this call. Uh, if people are new to training, they're probably going to have to listen to it a few times to really pick up everything in there. People are advanced. I'm, I'm sure they picked up uh, a new tip or two that they're going to have to try. Uh, anything you want to say as far as, like, summarizing everything you talked about here? I, what I seem to like from your approach is it's really experimental, right? Mm-hmm. And you're – I imagine in doing this whole process, right, you're really getting to know your body better, Um could you speak maybe to sort of the idea of listening to your body? I, I just imagine as you're kind of getting the body to react to your training, react to your diet in this way that you just become much more in tune with it. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. And that's, I think that's actually one of the most critical things that I want to get across to people and to teach people is that you are in charge of your body. You can do whatever the hell you want with it, and you don't have to follow convention. And you don't have to do what I tell you. You don't have to do what anybody tells you. You can try stuff on your own. You can take the stuff that you read, the stuff that I've told you here today, do your own experiments with it. You know, maybe your body reacts a little bit differently. You can get more out of doing something a little bit differently. So that's really the key is to experiment with it. Don't be constrained by dogma. Don't feel like you have to do something a certain way, that you have to do full range of motion all the time, that you have to, you know, do everything 
normal. And that's for me, it's just like normal is stupid. You know, yeah. I, I do normal training once in a while, but <laughs> it's not very often. And, you know, it's only kind of like if I don't want to think about trying to come up with something new at that time, then I'll do, you know, just a normal training session. Right. But the exercises might be insane too. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Well, I, I had this realization the other day, like, uh, you know, kind of, I mean, alternative health with everything I do and, uh, you know, alternative everything. Like, yeah, my training's not typical as like the conventional of everything's kind of crappy. <laughs> like who wants to be normal? Right? Exactly. It's normal sucks. It's like, why do I want to do what 95% of people are doing when 95% of people aren't getting results? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Let's face it. The average is not very good. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> the right. average is below average, so yeah. we should set ourselves apart in some way. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you know, experiment and have fun with it. Have fun with your training. Yeah. yeah. And I agree. That's the thing. Like, there's so much opportunity, so many different things you can do. Find something that you're actually going to enjoy, and you know. Yeah. Uh, we, we both like lifting weights, uh, and a variety of other things, but you know, that's obviously not the right approach for everyone, but everyone needs to move. So you got to find the right thing for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, where would you like people to go to find out more about you? And, uh, we'll be sure to include links to everything you mentioned here in the show notes as well. Uh, if, if any of you guys found that there was like too much detail, like Nick's programs are very step-by-step detailed oriented, giving you all this information in a much easier uh, fashion to uh, say, read than uh, listening just on the podcast here. So yeah. Uh, yeah wh- what would you recommend for most people? Uh, right now I've got uh, two main sites, uh, my main informational site, and I got tons of stuff on here. Like uh, it's fitstep.com. So F I T S T E P dot com and uh, the site where I have all my books located is fitness-ebooks.com and I've got uh, the whole list of what I've got available there so it's like exercise stuff it's programs it's uh, it's a lot of really cool stuff all right very cool well thank you so much Nick this was a very exciting call like I said I learned a few things I'm excited to try in my training the coming weeks yeah man, it was a lot of fun it's, uh, I love talking about this stuff Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for uh, being here, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode for you. Thank you.